please welcome Mr. Philip Brooks of Wellington Management and Mr. Pete Yongvanich. สวัสดีครับท่านผู้ประกาศกันอีกครั้งนึงนะครับครั้งนี้เป็นเอ่อเซสชั่นสุดท้ายของวันนี้นะครับเอ่อลาสต์บัตรนอตลิสต์นะคร
and tailors the treatment to that person's genetic makeup, to their cells, to their cancer type. So it's highly, highly targeted. So each of these drills, and you get an injection with millions of them, each of these drills is targeted at identifying cancer cells in your body and only cancer cells and attaching to those cells. Now it doesn't end there. The next stage of the technology is those drills are activated using UV light. So on their own, they can go into your body, they can identify cancer cells and they can attach to them. But they're dormant until they're activated with UV light. And what the UV light does is it basically tells the drills, it gives them the energy to start spinning. And they spin these tiny little drills at millions of times per second. And through that spinning motion, they break through the cell membrane of the cancer cells, basically burst the cancer cells. And this treatment kills cancer cells on average between in one minute to three minutes time. So it's very, very rapid. And to give you an idea of the efficacy, how well this treatment works, for the patients that were um, treated with this approach, and they were all children with leukemia, and in particular, a type of leukemia that other drugs had not been able to successfully treat, within a three-month period of having taken this treatment, 83% of those children were in remission from their leukemia, 83. So it's very, very effective across a very significant set of the, the patient population that uses the treatment. Now, this is also a really expensive treatment. This treatment costs about 450,000 US dollars. So it's one of the most expensive medicines in the world today. But when you think of this as being a treatment that is essentially curing or close to an otherwise incurable childhood cancer, it's a relatively small price to pay. And again, this is just one of the more recent innovations in the healthcare sector. There's a great deal going on. Yep, so but, okay, yeah, we, we heard a lot of, you know, update, new thing happening, but the, perform, the performance of the healthcare sector, like normally they have been affected by the noise of the political, yeah. you know, as, as I mentioned, the repairs and repeal, Obama, like, and see like the Trump getting in, you know, they have been like this cut and up and down, you know, happening and, uh, reflect the performance of this sector. How, how you you know view on this this kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's one of the most topical questions about healthcare is the impact of politics, and the impact really is significant. Now, if we think back to 12 or 18 months ago, so the start of last year, at the start of last year, the U.S. election cycle was in full swing. And at that stage, most people thought that Hillary Clinton was likely to win the election. And Hillary Clinton, as I'm sure we all recall, was talking very, very aggressively about regulating the healthcare sector, and in particular, capping drug prices. And that scared a lot of investors. That, you know, Hillary's likely to win, and she's really bad for healthcare because she wants to limit the revenues that companies can generate. The healthcare sector sold off pretty sharply, underperforming the market last year because people were worried about Hillary Clinton. And then Donald Trump won, and, and looking back now, it's hard to reconcile why, but anyway, <laughs> the market was very excited about Donald Trump winning last year. 
And the healthcare sector since then has performed very strongly. It's been one of the stronger performing sectors on a year-to-date basis. So clearly, politics and sentiment related to politics has short-term impacts on the sector. And I'm sure this will probably come up a few times during the discussion today, but from our perspective and the way we identify and invest in healthcare companies, that sentiment, that politics, is nearly completely irrelevant. In our view, it is the longer term drivers of business success. So in particular for financial, sorry, for for pharmaceuticals or biotech companies, it's not the short term financials, this quarter's earnings or what's the revenue associated with, with their existing set of drugs that are available to sell. It's much longer term than that. It's about the drugs that are in their R&D or research and development pipelines. The drugs that won't be available for sale for another three years, five years, or 10 years. Very long horizon, but those are the things that are impactful for company share prices and not politics, even though in the short term, it can be volatile. Okay, since you do to talk about the, the pipeline and the work in three or five days, so what are some of the revolutionary innovation in the healthcare sector going forward that you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it's a really exciting time more broadly across the healthcare sector. So when we look globally today across all of the drugs from all of the companies in the sector, the drugs that are in the R&D phase, there are more than 7,000 different medicines that are being developed across a wide range of treatment areas. So cancer, like that CAR-T treatment that I mentioned earlier, is certainly a really big focus. And perhaps something that we'll have the opportunity to talk a little bit more today about as well. But that's an area where some of our research team who analyze these companies believe that there is being groundbreaking work being done. One of the analysts says that he believes very fundamentally believes, and he's a trained medical doctor, that cancer will be cured within our lifetimes. Now that's a bold statement, but it gives you some idea of the innovation and the efficacy of the treatments being developed. And again, that's just one area. So central nervous system diseases like Alzheimer's and and Huntington's, a big focus area, Um, as are other things like depression. Um, Immune system diseases, also another significant focus area. So there are a wide range of different underlying disease types with a significant number of companies Mm -hmm. seeking to develop new and more effective treatments for those diseases. Now, I think that's something that probably resonates with us all as people. It's great to see the healthcare systems that we have access to becoming more effective over time but it should also resonate with us from an investment perspective. As these treatments become more effective, the revenues that companies can generate from developing them are higher and higher. And so the long-term revenue outlook, the long-term investment outlook for the sector is similarly really compelling. Okay, so like from uh, what you're talking about, it's like, oh, that's the healthcare sector related to only the biotechnology? Biotechnology and pharmaceutical. Is there any other subsector that interesting or something that we should share, please? Yeah, absolutely. So within the healthcare portfolios that we manage, we actually invest widely across all of the different subsectors within healthcare. And clearly, pharma and biotech is one very important sector. And by size, it's the single largest component of healthcare. 
but there are also hospital operators, so healthcare service companies, and there are medical technology and devices companies, so companies that develop pacemakers and stents and other implantable devices. In our portfolios, we see opportunities across all of those areas, and we're investing actively in each of those subsectors. Recently, with all the, the, the drug that they get approved or not approved, like, we will see like, if the company have their like, blockbuster drug and then they not pass the test, so the stock price going down quite sharply. So th how you handle that kind of risk? Uh, yeah, yep. it, it certainly is one of the risks that we see in the sector. So you know, we, were, we were commenting a minute ago on politics and the impact of sentiment. That's one risk. Another much more specific risk to an individual company will be if it's a pharma or a biotech company developing a new treatment, if the regulator, so for example, the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, if they don't pass or approve that treatment, we can see the share price really significantly collapse. And indeed, there's been a number of examples in, of that happening within the last 12 to 18 months. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There were, um, in January of last year, drug trial results announced for a depression drug, and the trial was deemed to be a failure. Basically, the group of patients taking that anti-depression drug didn't improve as much as the other group of patients, the control group, who were taking a placebo. So they were taking, effectively, a sugar pill and the people taking the sugar pill improved more than the people taking the treatment. Now, this is not the desired outcome. The, clearly, the company's share price fell significantly in the wake of that news. Now, we, looking at that situation, analyzing the company, analyzing the medicine, looking at the science behind the treatment, which is a key focus area for us, we were convinced that actually that depression treatment was in the right direction, that it would be successful over time, even though in the short term, the market had been very disappointed with the drug trial result. Our decision was to buy more of that company as the share price declined. And as we've moved into this year, actually further trials have shown that drug to be really effective. And so the share price has rebounded very strongly. And so that volatility between short-term negative news and price impact can create buying opportunities within the sector. And I think this is a really important um, point to make about the healthcare sector more broadly and specifically about the way we invest in the sector. There are many, many very capable investors around the world, portfolio managers and analysts who specialize in looking at companies and understanding their revenues and their cash flows, building financial models, valuing those stocks. It's a difficult skill set, but there are lots of people out there who are very, very good at it. And that's certainly one of the skill sets that you need to be a successful healthcare investor. But in addition to having that financial analysis skill set, you also need, particularly for pharma and biotech companies, to have a medical science skill set. You need to be able to under, understand and identify the companies who are doing the best research, the drugs that are more likely to be effective or not effective, and to invest accordingly. And that skill set, that combination of a healthcare science, medical in a sense, skill set, and financial analysis is relatively rare. 
And so when we see examples like that depression drug trial last year that seemingly failed, financial analysts certainly would have thought it was had failed, that can create short-term significant volatility in share prices that managers like us that can have the potential to look through that volatility and really understand the underlying medical science. It can create huge opportunities for us to take advantage of that market inefficiency. So they have to have the professional skill set on the, the medical side and then the financial? In Absolutely. The, yeah, for them to be able to identify whether this is the, the real one or just a short-term fail and then it might raise up? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we think that the structure of our investment team for the healthcare portfolios that we manage is really well suited to that combination of skills. Mm -hmm. So just to give you one indication, um, there are seven lead analysts within our healthcare team who focus on the research and identify, identification of the best healthcare businesses for the portfolio. Across those seven analysts, they have an average of about 25 years of investment experience, mm -hmm. and all they've ever done is focus on the healthcare sector. So not only a lot of experience, okay. but a significant depth of experience specifically within healthcare. And indeed, one of those team members is a trained medical research scientist, was a practicing medical research doctor before joining Wellington a number of years ago. And again, that combination of skill sets, that depth of analytical capability combined with specialist medical expertise, mm -hmm. we think is very, very helpful for this type of portfolio. Okay. So like we talk about the risks of the political, we talk about the drug fail, so what are the some structural tailwind to support this sector? Yeah, so certainly the innovation and the pace of innovation that we've touched on already is one of the very, very important trends. But there are a couple of other really important long-term trends as well. So in particular, demographics is a big long-term tailwind for the sector. When I talk about demographics, what I'm really meaning is people are getting older. And in particular, we tend to think of this as a developed market issue. So we tend to look at the US or at Europe, or particularly as some of the other presenters earlier commented on about Japan. Here we have countries or regions of the world where the average age is old and getting older over time. And the new birth rates are relatively low. Now the interesting thing about that from a healthcare perspective is as we age, all of us, we do spend more on healthcare. But I think the other interesting thing about this is that it's not just a developed market issue, as we might assume. It's not just the US or Europe or Japan. It's actually prevalent in many markets globally, including many emerging markets. So for example, in China, the population in China is rapidly aging as well. So the aging of the global population is a long-term supportive tailwind for the healthcare sector. Another one is the increasing wealth levels that we're seeing in emerging markets around the world. And so what we're seeing is over time, and again, this is a long-term story, we're seeing emerging market economies continue to grow and expand, and the, the people, the households, the individuals within those emerging market economies, their incomes are rising as the economies grow and expand. The growth of the middle class in emerging markets, which I'm sure is a trend that you've heard of, is a key long-term driver for the success of the healthcare industry. Basically, as we become wealthier, we have more disposable income to spend on healthcare. 
and the percentage of healthcare spending in terms of the total income across the nation rises as income levels rise. So those trends, demographics, the aging population, the expansion of the middle class, particularly in emerging markets, and then the overall innovation that we're seeing across the healthcare sector today are three very, very positive tailwinds and ones that will continue to be positive for a long period of time. So these are not just reasons to own and invest in healthcare companies today, or indeed next year. These are supportive reasons to own healthcare for the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years. It's a very long horizon story. It's like, before we talk about the future, but is it any concern or any trigger point that, you know, pop up and then we are aware, okay, well, the sector might be performed very well, you know, in the future. Is it anything that you can share with that? in terms of those things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are, there are always risks, both positive and negative, with any investment that you can make. And, and I think, really, we've touched on some of the, the larger risks to the healthcare sector already. So this short-term impact of politics and sentiment, which can be good, as we saw with the Trump election, and can be yeah. bad, as we saw with the concerns about Hillary Clinton, those are certainly shorter-term risks. And again, the way we perceive those risks is often they create opportunities, they create mispricings within the sector that we're able to take advantage of within the portfolio to generate better returns for investors within the approach. Um, and then more specifically, you have the company level risks, like failed drug trials. The depression drug trial that I mentioned last year, one such example. More recently, there have also been some failed trials for cancer treatments, immuno-oncology cancer treatments. And these, again, you know, the market has taken these failed trials to be very, very negative, and the share prices have sold off significantly. These are also treatment areas that we believe, our research team believes, will be very effective in the long term. And again, we've been expanding the positions that we own in those companies within the portfolio. So that disconnect between market sentiment and fundamental reality can be a really important one. Similarly, the disconnect between financial analyst views of healthcare companies and healthcare medical science professional research views of healthcare companies can also be a really big um, impact on company returns, but also a great source of value added. So those are certainly some of the, the larger, higher level risks that we see, um, but not ones that we are worried about in terms of the outlook for the sector. What I'll also perhaps share with you um, in a bigger picture vein is valuation risk, for, again, for any investment, can be a significant investment for any asset, not specific to healthcare. For any asset, when you buy that asset at an expensive price, you're paying too much, your future return will be lower. And so, you know, one of the concerns potentially for healthcare is well, what are the valuations like? Is the sector more expensive than it should be today? And, and happily, the answer to that is, in our view, no. So when we look at valuations of healthcare companies relative to the rest of the marketplace, healthcare is trading today at a little bit of a discount compared to the typical level that it trades at. So it's cheap on that basis. It's also, again, within our framework, very cheap on a longer-term outlook for the sector. So when we look at the scope for revenue growth, the scope for increasing earnings from these companies over the next three years, five years, 10 years, and then look at how much of that is reflected in current share prices, 
current valuations, we continue to see very meaningful upside in the companies today. And indeed, that seven-member team of analysts that I mentioned earlier, 25 years of experience, so very, very experienced, were they here, they would say to you that this is the most exciting time to be a healthcare investor in their careers. They are seeing more opportunity and more mispricing, so valuation upside, in the sector today than in their entire 25 years investment careers. So the outlook is quite bright? It's quite strong. So how will then like positioning or investment strategy for, for those kind of opportunity? Yeah, so um, as we touched on earlier, within our portfolios, we do actively invest across all different types of healthcare companies. So pharma and biotech companies, services companies like hospitals and drug distributors, and medical devices companies. And we do see opportunities in each of those areas. Um, similarly, we invest across the world within the portfolio. So we own US names, we own names in Europe, we own names in Japan and in emerging markets. So the breadth of exposure, the breadth of opportunity is very significant. Within that, I think one of the more interesting um, positions to share with you is our positioning in the pharma and biotech space. Now, I mentioned earlier briefly, this is the largest part of the healthcare market. It's close to 70% of the total market exposure within healthcare is in the pharma and biotech area. And a lot of that is dominated by very large and historically very successful companies. In our portfolios, that is those large pharma companies, that's the single biggest area where we are underweight within our portfolio. And the reason for that is while those companies are in some cases yesterday's winners, very few of those companies are truly innovative today. Very few of those companies are the ones that are seeking to develop the next effective cancer treatment or the next effective Alzheimer's treatment. And we're seeing far more innovation, a much more rapid pace of new drug discovery in smaller and mid-cap pharma and biotech companies. And so the largest tilt in our portfolio today is to be underweight those very large pharma companies and to be very overweight the smaller and mid-cap pharma companies because that's where the innovation is really being focused. Another way in which our portfolio is different to the index, so different to the broader market or an index fund for healthcare, is we're quite strongly overweight the US market within our portfolio. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we do invest globally. We do have exposure to companies in Europe and in Japan and in emerging markets, but we have the largest exposure in the US. And that's not because we have a positive macroeconomic view on the US or not because we think Trump's policies would be good, clearly not, um, but simply because when we look at the level of research and development spending, again, particularly in pharma and biotech, US companies typically spend about half as much again, in some cases twice as much again, on research and development as their non-US peers. And so if you think of which companies are more likely to develop the innovative treatments, well, it's the companies that are spending the most on R&D, and in the US, companies simply spend more, on average, on R&D than their non-US counterparts. And so again, that innovative focus is something that you can more easily access in US listed healthcare companies, at least as at today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, um, maybe look good 
for the healthcare. And if I would like to kind of ask you for, for your opinion in terms of, you know, if we put as a portfolio, healthcare sector should be like pay a big uh, portion because like uh, a couple of clients, uh, when we talk to someone, they said, okay, I'm gonna get older, the medicine is getting expensive, so we, we, we might do the natural hedge, you know, buy into the sector, but the sector itself is quite volatile as well, you know, so how, how you uh, uh, thought on this, this one? Yeah, absolutely. So um, certainly one of the ways that I think about healthcare is, is a hedge to my own healthcare costs. So you know, as we age, uh, and sadly I'm ra aging rapidly, uh, healthcare does become more expensive. We have more of a need for it. And one of the ways you can hedge against that healthcare-related inflation is by being an investor within the healthcare sector. So certainly in that context, it does make a lot of sense. But also, I think it makes a great deal of sense, particularly in an Asian context. Now, what I mean by that is, when you look at, say, an Asian equity portfolio, like an Asia X Japan equity strategy, similar to the one being discussed earlier today, the healthcare sector is a tiny, tiny part of our regional equity marketplace. It's only about 2% of the broader Asia X Japan region. And so while I'm sure many of us in the room today have direct exposure to Thai equity or more broadly Asian equity, within that healthcare will be a really small component. And so you can balance that exposure, gain more exposure to the healthcare sector by having a targeted exposure within a healthcare portfolio like the one we're discussing here. So I think in that broader portfolio context, it also can play a very meaningful role. Um, and then to the question on volatility, I think one of the really interesting things about the healthcare sector is that yes, it's been volatile in the last 12 to 18 months because of the impact of political concerns, but actually over time, compared to the broader marketplace, the healthcare sector tends to be somewhat more defensive, somewhat less volatile than the total equity market. And the reason for that actually, I think, makes a great deal of sense. So if you think about your own spending on a day-to-day -day basis or the spending that you might do on behalf of your family, if we go through an economic slowdown, if incomes become tighter, if we're stretching our cash to go a little bit further, where do we cut down on our savings first? Well, we cut down on discretionary items. We might not go to the movies or we might not buy as expensive a you know, loaf of bread or, or whatever it might be, but we don't cut down on our healthcare spending. And certainly not, if you have children, you don't cut down on the healthcare spending related to your children's needs. And what that means is the result of that is that healthcare company revenues tend to be more defensive. During an economic slowdown, we'll cut in other areas, but we'll try not to cut in healthcare. And so those more defensive revenues mean that the, over time, the sector tends to be less volatile than the broader marketplace. So that means like it's good for put a big portion on, on this healthcare? And, and yeah, so I'm clearly I'm biased, but, <laughs> but, but yes, um, it's certainly in, in a broader portfolio context, we believe it makes a great deal of sense to have a meaningful exposure to the healthcare sector. Okay, since, since we are uh, in, in this one and uh, Wellington is managed our global kind of equity as well, so how you view on the, the global market? Uh, this year and then the year forward, you know, if I might. Yeah, well, in, in fact, I'm going to paraphrase one of the earlier presenters to, today to say that we're cautiously optimistic. 
So we certainly are optimistic when we look at fundamentals around the world. So let me explain what I mean. When we look at the global economy as a starting point, generally speaking, things are going reasonably well in the global economy, and generally we expect that improvement to continue. And so, you know, for example, the US has been growing at two to two and a half percent for a few years now, and our expectation is that it's going to continue to grow at two to two and a half percent into next year as well. When we look at Europe, the pace of growth has been lower, and the recovery from the financial crisis took a longer time than the US, but Europe is now starting to see an improvement in growth. And even Japan, which has been a slow growth market for a while, is seeing some signs of improvement, some signs of economic expansion. And in the emerging markets, actually, the growth story is really quite attractive. So from a macro perspective, things are good and generally getting better. When we look at equity market valuations, and again, this is a, a big focus area in markets, we're also reasonably optimistic. Now, that's not to say that all equities are cheap. So in particular, the US market and parts of it are relatively expensive. But outside the US, markets are much more attractively valued. And on a global basis, equities look reasonable value. Not, not aggressively cheap, but not overly expensive across most global markets. So valuations look okay as well. The one area where we are, I guess, where we believe there's more risk, and hence the word cautiously optimistic, is volatility levels in markets today are pretty low. The level of volatility today is about, and it varies over time, and it varies with the North Korean situation right now, but on average in the last three or four months, we've had the lowest volatility levels of the last 10 years. And indeed, if you look back over a longer period of time, we've actually had the lowest volatility in equity markets for about the last 90 years. So with volatility being low, you could reasonably expect that it will rise from here. Okay. And so while we do believe that the outlook is good and therefore revenues and returns should improve from here, it won't be a smooth ride. It will probably be a bumpy ride with more volatility. Mm. Not because we have any specific insight into what those sources sure. of volatility might be, but simply because volatility is so low, it's likely to rise from here. So cautiously optimistic mm -hmm. within that framework. Again, healthcare is a more defensive sector because of the more stable revenue base should be a great way to invest in a more volatile marketplace in our view. Yep. When you mentioned about the low volatility, so, so what is the, the, the factor to, to, this, to, to that one you know, compared to the last 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, so if you look at markets today and you look at the potential sources for volatility to be so low, there's really only one that stands out as the likely factor, and that is the level of quantitative easing support, basically governments pumping money into financial assets that we're seeing in markets around the world. And in particular, markets like Europe and Japan where official rates are zero, that can distort valuations and opportunities in financial markets. That, I think, is the likely reason why, why volatility has been depressed in the recent period. Um, as those quantitative easing programs start to end, and this is not a short-term story, so we're seeing, we're moving towards the end, we're seeing the tapering in the US, that will probably happen in a year to 18 months in Europe and perhaps a longer term again in Japan. But as that QE is withdrawn, we'll likely see volatility start to rise again. All right. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Is, uh, any uh, other concern overly? 
overall, in, in your opinion? Yep. Yeah, no, not, not from our perspective. I mean, I, clearly there are the, the, the immediate concerns with what's going on, for example, in North Korea. Yep. Um, that is likely, in our view, bluster rather than a fundamental concern, but, but you know, it, it's not a zero probability event. Um, but specific to the healthcare sector, I think we've touched on the main issues that, that we see today. And again, while there can be triggers for sentiment or company level results driving short-term volatility, the underlying longer-term story, we believe, remains very, very attractive. Okay, thank you very much. Philip, so, นะครับเอ่อพูดถึงเรื่องเฮลท์แคร์นะครับเดี๋ยวผมสรุปนิดนึงก็เอ่อลองเทอมเนี่ยไปดูที่อินโนเวชั่นที่ผลิตมามากกว่านะครับที่สามารถที่จะเจเนเรทรายได้ให้กับบริษัทต่างๆนะครับเอ่อในแง่
นะครับผมยังได้ถามเขาในแง่ของ global market นะครับเขาก็ cautiously optimistic นะครับก็คือก็คือยังโอเคแต่เขามองว่าในอเมริกาเนี่ยอาจจะค่อนข้าง stress แล้วนะครับแต่ equity ในใน other country นะครับ around the world ยังโอเคนะครับที่ต้องต้องเข้าไปดูนะครับเพราะฉะนั้นเนี่ยก็ทั้ง healthcare sector และ global equity นะซึ่งซึ่งเวลลิงตันเนี่ยก็เป็นพาร์ทเนอร์ของเราในใน asset class นี้นะครับก็มาแชร์วิวแล้วก็ในแง่ของโอกาสและอุปสรรคในการลงทุนในเซกเตอร์นี้นะครับครับงั้นขอเสียงตบมือให้คุณฟิลิปบรูคครับ Thank you very much Thank you very much